Hey everyone, I just wanted to pop in and say that I will be hosting a clinic April 9th and 10th, 2022 in Ipswich, Massachusetts with Stuart Muir, Paige Poss, Derek Poupard, and Yogi Sharp, along with Black Brook Veterinary Services. We'll be doing hands-on casting and gluing and observing dissection and working with the vets on radiograph analysis. You can sign up on my website, thehumblehoof.com, and you can listen to interviews with any of these clinicians on the podcast. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I first heard of Dr. Alicia Nolfi on Horse Vet Corner, a Facebook group that helps owners troubleshoot some issues with their horses when they don't have access to a vet immediately. I was always super impressed with her answers to questions, especially regarding lameness and hoof issues, and more recently, laminitis. So I reached out to her to see if she would chat with me about laminitis, prevention, causes, and treatment. So why don't we get started and you can tell us how you became interested in lameness and hoof issues in your vet practice. Sure. My senior year of vet school was 2009. On a surgery rotation that year, one of my patients was a very tough laminitic case. Dr. Rick Redden was flying in frequently to treat this mare, and I had the great fortune of his presence coinciding with the timing of my rotation. Working with Dr. Redden opened my eyes and my my life, really, to progressive equine podiatry and mechanical thinking. His knowledge about the equine foot and specifically laminitis, and additionally, his willingness to medically, physically, and emotionally go above and beyond for every patient was tremendously inspiring to me. He was not only treating her feet, but he connected with her and taught me a lot then and over the years about how to listen to the horse. So that sweet, very sweet, kind mare and Dr. Redden were the catalysts that fueled my desire to become a foot-focused veterinarian. And over the years, I have concentrated my continuing education on equine podiatry. The old adage, no foot, no horse, is certainly true. Throughout the years, I have learned that everything we see on the outside of the foot is created by its internal health. So if we understand how to interpret the fine details of the external characteristics of the equine foot, we can address unhealthy characteristics before they become a career or life-threatening problem for the horse. Preventive equine podiatry should be equally as important as other areas of preventive medicine, such as, for example, vaccinations, dentistry, parasite management, And laminitis is no different. If we are proactive and aggressive about trying to prevent laminitis in at-risk horses, perhaps we could take it off the list of leading causes of death in horses. The equine foot is a dynamic, intricate, and complex organ, and everything we do to the foot and the horse can affect the health of the foot. There is nothing more satisfying than looking into the eyes of a horse who you have just helped. I can feel their relief of pain. I can feel almost their gratitude, if you will. And subsequently, there is nothing more heartbreaking than looking into the eyes of a horse you cannot help. 
my goal as a veterinarian is to contribute to the betterment of the horse. Yeah, and and since we are focusing today on laminitis, uh, my next question is, what do you see as the leading cause of laminitis in horses in your own practice? The leading cause, I would say, in what I see in my practice and across the world, what we see in the equine world is endocrine-associated laminitis. And that would be horses that have what we would call either equine metabolic syndrome or more specifically insulin dysregulation with or without Cushing's disease or PPID. I think they estimate now, one estimate I saw was over 80%. One estimate I saw was over 90% of horses with laminitis fall into that category. We recognize the causes of laminitis as three broad categories. So one would be endocrine-associated laminitis. The other would be SIRS associated laminitis. So horses that are very sick with something that causes sepsis in the body. So perhaps placentitis, colitis, pleuropneumonia, anything that causes sepsis or toxic shock syndrome in horses can lead to laminitis. And then we have supporting limb laminitis as a third broad category. So when a horse is bearing more weight than is healthy on one limb for any more than a few days, really. So prolonged abscesses, fracture repair, you know, anything really, any type of injury to one limb that would cause a horse to bear more weight on one or other limbs can cause laminitis in the weight-bearing limbs. But back to your original question, endocrine-associated laminitis is by far the leading cause of laminitis that we see in horses and I see as well in my practice. Yeah. And even as a hoof care provider, that's something that I feel like I'm always dealing with is the endocrinopathic related laminitis. And I've only actually seen personally one case of SIRS uh, laminitis, which was a colitis and liver infection. And it was one of the most difficult cases I've worked on. And I, I personally feel like, you know, if it's metabolic related, I'm almost more hopeful because there's things that we can do. There's, you know, something we can work on to get them managed and, and keep them sound longer. Absolutely. I would agree with you on that. And, you know, that it kind of goes back to our first question in preventive care, right? So with the SIRS horse, those horses are most likely to be your sinkers as well. So if we know a horse has, let's say, for instance, pleuropneumonia or a liver infection, as you said, or colitis or whatever it may be, a tough delivery, dystocia, those horses, if we take action before they become lame and take aggressive action before they become lame, we could probably save a lot more of them. So that goes back to the preventive discussion where we are expecting laminitis to happen and being aggressive with our diagnostics and our preventive podiatry before they become lame. Yeah. And actually, that's a perfect segue into my next question of, you know, when using diagnostics and lameness evaluations, what are some of the more subtle signs of laminitis that might have been mistaken for something else at first? And how can we get towards catching laminitis earlier? Well, if we're talking about the majority of cases of laminitis, and those would be the endocrinopathic associated laminitis cases, 
We know those horses are at risk, but really any horse, but those primarily are who we're going to see. So any lameness, any sudden onset lameness, or even any subtle chronic lameness in those horses should be suspect for laminitis until proven otherwise, in my opinion, because laminitis lameness can look like anything. It's often thought of as a horse that has laminitis will have the classic front limbs stretched out, rocked back on the hind limbs, eyes bugged out, sweating, shaking, reluctance to move appearance. And they can, for certain, look like that. But the majority of cases, in my experience, don't look like that. So they're a lameness that looks like any other lameness that you can think of. One horse I had, his primary complaint, well, it wasn't his primary complaint, but the owner's primary complaint was that he would trip occasionally in the pasture or when being ridden. Otherwise, he was perfectly fine walking around, eating, drinking, no problems. He fell a couple of times when being ridden and the owner subsequently fell as well and just couldn't figure out exactly what was going on with him. And when we saw him, we diagnosed eventually with diagnostics that we'll talk about in a little bit, chronic laminitis. So they can look like anything. It can be sudden. It can be a chronic onset. So I would say catching it early really is is treating it as laminitis if you notice new lameness or, or chronic lameness until proven otherwise, because the consequences of laminitis can be devastating, as we all know. And assuming it's not laminitis because it doesn't look the way you think it should look can have life-threatening sequelae. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something where I get a lot of pushback from owners if I say, oh, you know, I'm seeing this evidence of these event lines or, you know, I I just don't like the way that they're moving before or after a trim and, you know, maybe get some blood work done or what's their diet. And I, I feel like sometimes there's that pushback of like, oh, no, they're, you know, they never have a pulse. They don't have any heat in their feet. They're fine. Whereas I'm, you know, trying to catch something before it gets to that point. Yes, I agree completely. Digital pulse palpation can be largely variable among horses. I've seen horses with abscesses that have no digital pulse. I've seen horses that have increased digital pulses and they don't have an abscess or they don't have laminitis. Um, Hoof texture response is another big one that is hugely variable. It depends on so many different things. And it also depends on how the person performs the hoof test. So I've heard, you know, well, he's, he's negative to hoof testers, so he must not have laminitis. That's definitely not the case. The appearance of the lameness, like we talked about, can be so variable. The heat, as you mentioned, Alicia, is is very subjective and can be there, cannot be there. So really, the best the best advice I would have is to assume it's laminitis and rule it in and out as soon as possible. And so when you're coming to more diagnostics in terms of a hoof-related lameness, if you're taking radiographs and looking for signs of laminitis, what are you looking for specifically outside of just rotation? Um, Because I know many people who assume their horse hasn't foundered, if there isn't a broken forward phalangeal, you know, rotation. But obviously that doesn't necessarily rule out laminitis or even hoof capsule rotation. So I don't know if you could kind of expand more on what you look at on radiographs. Sure. So first, I think it's important to talk about the concept and finding of rotation in a foot when you're looking at lateral radiographs. 
So when you're looking at rotation on lateral radiographs, you're looking at the angle of the costum bone within the hoof capsule, and that's relative to either the shoe or the ground or both. Every foot on every horse is unique. There are no two feet that are created equally. So the PA, that it's called palmar angle, which is the coffin bone angle with the shoe or with the ground. It's palmar angle in the front and plantar angle in the back. That PA will be different depending on many things. So depending on breed stereotype, depending on specific genetics, depending on use and wear, and certainly depending on human changes that we make to the foot, either with the rasp or the nippers and how long it's been since we did that. So if we don't have the starting point of the palmar angle before the laminitis happened, then we don't know technically how many degrees rotation there is. So that's one thing. The other thing to mention is that when we see rotation on radiographs, the vast majority of the time, the rotation is what has already happened. So that's what happened in the past. How long ago in the past that happened is variable depending on each case and and the level of ongoing tissue damage in the foot. So that could have happened three months ago. That could have happened three weeks ago. That could have happened three days ago. So we're behind the game when we're looking at radiographs. Another interesting point about rotation is that it is not correlated to the degree of current tissue damage, nor is it correlated to prognosis. So some horses have high-scale tissue damage going on in the foot, and they have zero rotation, and they have examples of those radiographs. Some horses are penetrated through the soul, and historically we thought that that's a, a guarded or grave prognosis, and that's also not the case. We can get those horses back depending on the level of of ongoing tissue damage they have. So it's not correlated to the current ongoing damage or to the prognosis. So I don't typically even worry a whole lot about the degree of rotation, quote unquote, for all of those reasons. What I look at when I'm looking for laminitis on plane radiographs is I'm looking for swelling of the lamellar zone. The lamellar zone, when you're looking at a lateral radiograph that is taken with proper beam angle orientation and high resolution, the lamellar zone on a lateral radiograph is the dark area that lies along the dorsal face of the coffin bone. So if you're looking at a lateral radiograph, you see the coffin bone, and then along that you see a a darker area, and then adjacent to that, further towards the, the external environment, is the more opaque or more whitish area, and that's the horn wall. And then you have the outer hoof wall, which is the border of the border of the dorsal face of the foot on a lateral radiograph. So the darker area that's along the face of the coffin bone is the lamellar zone. And that zone, what we're looking for for true laminitis is gradual swelling from proximal to distal or top to bottom. So starting at the extensor process and going down to the apex of the coffin bone. And that would be in the case of those horses that do have the quote-unquote typical capsular rotation type of laminitis. Or in sinkers, it's not a gradual swelling. It's a generalized swelling. So you actually see the 
the width of the lamellar zone, the whole way down the coffin bone is enlarged versus the gradual swelling that you see with a typical capsular rotation when the lamellar structure fails and the coffin bone pulls away from the hoof wall versus sinking inside the capsule. Does that make sense? And usually when I think of hoof capsule rotation, I think of when when you're saying gradual, I'm visualizing where the proximal HL zone is narrower than the distal HL zone. Is that what you mean by that gradual? Yes. Yes. So it's just below the extensor process. So at the very distal point of the extensor process where then it starts and joins with the dorsal face of the coffin bone, from that point down to the apex of the coffin bone, the swelling will get larger as you go down the coffin bone so that at the proximal point, the distance is more narrow than at the distal point where it's wider. To clarify, in some of the horses with with the capsular rotation style of laminitis, you will see maybe even a, a millimeter to three millimeters of generalized swelling in the lamellar zone before they start to quote unquote rotate, before the bone starts to pull away from the wall. But in general, what we see when we get there is a gradual swelling from proximal to distal. And we have to be careful when we interpret that zone because a lot of these feet, by the time we see them, have distortion of the coffin bone from other for other reasons, either laminitis or primarily clubfoot syndrome. The clubfoot syndrome, anywhere from a grade one to four, if it's not managed in mechanics such that we're preventing a high palmar angle and thin soles, club feet of varying degrees will have capsular rotation that is not laminitis or may not be laminitis, should I say. So the bone can be a little bit distorted and it can make it look like the lamellar zone is swollen like laminitis, one really it's not. So we have to be careful when we interpret that zone. But if you have a horse that you suspect has laminitis and you're seeing what you think may be swelling of the lamellar zone, then we were going to assume that, you know, that is the case until we prove otherwise. Certainly we all have seen horses, as you mentioned, where people think they don't have laminitis because they don't have the rotation. And again, it's really important to understand that that's not the case. That's not what's pathognomonic for laminitis. And actually, I had two questions that I thought of when um, you were talking. You know, when you're looking at a lateral radiograph and you see that darker area around the coffin bone, um, that is what your, the dorsal part of that is what you're talking about in terms of the lamellar zone that you're looking for when we're looking at the swelling in the foot. And then, Yeah. So the lamellar zone is one of the three major dermal tissues in the foot. And dermal tissue means that it's a blood and nerve-filled connective tissue that lies underneath the durable sole or the horn wall. It lies underneath some uh, non-viable hardened structure, if you will. That's what a dermal tissue is. And in the foot, the lamellar zone is one of those dermal tissues, as is the coronary dermis. So it's, if you're looking at the lateral radiograph, you see the darker area that's around the extensor process of the coffin bone up higher in the foot or more proximal in the foot. So that darker area that's around the extensor process, which you see in the actual live foot as just below the coronary band is called the coronary dermis. And that dermal tissue grows the durable sole. And then along the dorsal face of the coffin bone, as we mentioned, there's the lamellar zone, which is the lamina 
of the foot that lies between the coffin bone and the horn wall. And then underneath the coffin bone in the palmar or plantar location, there's a dark area that you can see on the lateral radiographs. And that's the sole corium. And that's the third major dermal structure in the foot. And that sole corium is what grows the durable sole. And so all those dermal tissues contain a network of blood vessels. And those are the vessels that are affected during the pathological process of laminitis when we say vascular compromise. And it starts, we don't know how. We don't exactly know the mechanism for why the vascular compromise starts at the onset of laminitis, but it does happen. And we can see that on venograms. And the important thing to note is that the action of the deep digital flexor tendon exacerbates the vascular compromise. And that's a discussion about mechanics that we can get into in a minute. And then, Mm -hmm. so the other thing that I've seen on lateral radiographs, obviously, is the remodeling of the distal aspect of the coffin bone where we get the ski tipping. Um, And I think a lot of horse owners who might be looking at a radiograph and, you know, it, it might look like there's alignment there and there's nothing wrong, but we're seeing that remodeling. Would you automatically jump to past laminitis or chronic laminitis when we see that distal bone remodeling? Not necessarily because the clubfoot syndrome can create that remodeling as well. So we have to think about why the remodeling is there, right? So the remodeling is there because there are excessive forces on the bone and because of the vascular compromise, less than optimal blood flow to the tissues in that area. So the majority of blood in the foot comes from vessels that emerge from the coffin bone. So you have the palmar digital arteries that run medial and lateral down the pastern, and they enter into the coffin bone, right, into the terminal arch of the coffin bone. So underneath, if you will, in the palmar aspect of the coffin bone between the deep digital flexor tendon and the coffin bone, those arteries run in to the terminal arch and they join each other. And from there, the vessels branch off from that major major distribution center in the foot, they branch off and they emerge from the coffin bone. There's a tiny bit of blood supply at the top part of the foot that comes from a different source, but the majority of blood comes from the vessels emerge from the bone, which supplies the majority of blood in the foot. So over time, if you have excessive load in the front part of the foot, the dorsal part of the foot, either from clubfoot syndrome, so the deep digital flexor tendon is always pulling a little bit too much on the coffin bone, and it's compressing the sole corium over time, you're compromising the vessels in the sole corium, and you're also compromising the blood supply around the, the palmar aspect of the coffin bone. You're shearing the vessels in the lamellar zone, which also is resulting in less than optimal blood flow to the lamellar zone. And the majority of that excessive load and shearing forces are going to happen in the distal half and dorsal half of the coffin bone. So when you have less than optimal blood flow in that area, you're going to have less than optimal tissue health, which includes the bone itself, in addition to the excessive shearing forces on the bone. So when you see the ski tipping, the bone is going to remodel along the lines of force. So the body is laying down more bone along the lines of force. So you have that remodeling and that can happen in the clubfoot syndrome or it can happen in laminitis, two different causes. So There are some characteristics of the coffin bone remodeling 
that are very, say, telltale for clubfoot syndrome. But really, just from looking at them on plain radiographs, it would be hard to definitively say that this is clubfoot syndrome remodeling or laminitis remodeling or both. So you put the history together, you put the clinical picture of the horse together, along with the radiographic findings, whether or not you also have laminitis in addition to a clubfoot or one or the other. So if the radiograph might not be the most reliable diagnostic for laminitis, what is, in your opinion, the most reliable diagnostic that you use for laminitis? In my opinion, the venogram is the most reliable diagnostic and prognostic indicator we have right now for laminitis. The venogram is a simple procedure. It's technique sensitive, but it is a very simple procedure that can be done stall side at the horse the same time you're doing the radiographs. And what the venogram allows us to do is visualize the vascular tree of the foot. And it gives us an indication of the current level of damage in the foot and it gives us an indication of prognosis depending on our chosen treatment methods. The venogram, as I mentioned, can be done stall side with a few simple supplies in addition to your radiology equipment. It would be a tourniquet, bandage material, butterfly catheter, and contrast dye. And the way we do it is we block the foot, we put a tourniquet around the fetlock, we put a butterfly catheter into the palmar digital vein and inject contrast dye into the foot. And that allows us to see the blood vessels when we then take a series of radiographs. The series of radiographs we're taking are loaded and unloaded views, lateral and DP. Many people think historically what we're looking at in the venogram is that we're looking for quote unquote blood in the foot. And is there blood in the foot? But really what we're looking at is the fill of the blood vessels and therefore the likely ability of blood to get to tissues in the foot in loaded versus unloaded conditions. And sometimes the information that we're gathering in the venogram is in the fine details. So it's not an all or nothing. Is there blood in the foot or not blood in the foot? We're looking at the character of the vessels and we're looking for early signs of laminitis or the level of ongoing damage in the foot. So back to your original question about how can we detect laminitis early, the venogram, in my opinion, is the best method, diagnostic method that we have right now because sometimes it is very fine details in the vasculature that we're looking for that we can say this foot actually does have laminitis. And we can see those details on day one versus like we talked about before, plain radiograph findings sometimes are days or weeks until we can see them. The importance of the venogram information is, again, that's on day one. And that information comes during the period of time where we have the largest window of the ability of tissues to respond to our treatment methods. So can you expand a little bit more about what maybe you're looking for in the venogram or how you can tell through these diagnostics how seriously the hoof has been compromised? So with laminitis, there are two significant pathological processes that happen. The first, which most of us probably know, is lamellar structural failure. So at the cellular level, the attachment between the lamina and the inner hoof wall is breaking down and disorganizing and disintegrating. The second pathological process that happens is what we call vascular compromise. 
and that is a compromise of the blood vessels in the feet and therefore the ability of blood to get out to the dermal tissues in the foot. The vascular compromise is very serious and what prevents the life-threatening emergency that laminitis is. It's very similar to having a heart attack in the foot. So when a horse is having laminitis, whether it's an acute onset laminitis or chronic laminitis, the blood that is able to get out into the tissues of the foot is compromised. How we respond to that can have significant outcomes in the survival of the foot and therefore the horse. So the venogram is a way to evaluate the severity of what we call the tissue damage, meaning the tissues and their lack of adequate perfusion in the foot. So if we have that information right away, ideally on day one, we can make a bigger impact if we can reverse the vascular compromise versus waiting a week a month, a couple of months, six months down the road. So when you have a horse with laminitis, think of it as a tourniquet around the foot. And the blood supply is cut off to some level we don't know what until we can actually visualize the vasculature in the foot. And again, the heart attack analogy comes in and the response of the EMTs when they get to you when you're having a heart attack or the nurses or the physicians when you get to the hospital can make a big difference on the survival of your heart, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I thought that was all great. Inferior or hoof-related Facebook groups, I often see a lot of, surprise, surprise, arguments, especially when it comes to pathologies in the hoof. So of course, laminitis is no different. Even on this podcast in the past, we have heard a variety of approaches to laminitis and founder in terms of what others put on the feet. Dr. Nolfi spoke with me about using mechanics in laminitis rehab and the reasoning behind this sometimes controversial idea in the hoof care world and the results she has seen with it. I've even struggled in the past with the ideas Dr. Nolfi mentions, so hearing her clearly explain the reasoning is really helpful in understanding where this approach comes from. So... If you as the vet on the case are coming to a horse and you've diagnosed it with laminitis, what is your first step in getting this horse better and healing that foot? The first step in addressing a laminitic horse starts before the laminitic episode happens. Before we get the call... We hopefully have focused on preparedness because we've identified at-risk horses. That means preparedness on behalf of horse owner and or manager, as well as the veterinary farrier team. Horse owner education is critical because they are the ones discovering the horse and the potential laminitic episode. How quickly they respond, as well as how quickly we respond, can have serious consequences for the horse. Horse owners should understand that a horse in a laminitic state is having a quote-unquote heart attack to the foot. Blood flow to vital tissues in the foot is compromised. Therefore, the primary goal of everyone involved is to optimize blood flow to vital tissues as quickly as possible. Owners with horses that are at risk for laminitis should have an emergency podiatry package in their barn first aid kit just as everything else they have in their barn first aid kit, ready to put on their feet in case a laminitic episode happens. The very best option we have for that right now is the Nanric Ultimate Shoe, which decreases tension in the deep digital flexor tendon by approximately 65% 
and therefore helps to unload the dorsal half of the foot. There are specifics about the shoe that make it very unique. It's not the same as a plain wedge. And if the shoe is to be used for laminitis, it should be fitted as per standardized recommendations. That happens with radiographic guidance and a comprehension of how the shoe is properly fitted to the foot. However, an owner or manager can temporarily secure the shoe to the foot with bandage material and that will help protect the vasculature until the veterinary farrier team arrives. Laminitis being the serious life-threatening emergency that it is necessitates an emergency call to the vet farrier team so as soon as the emergency package goes on the feet the team is called. We tell owners, try not to move your horse, but rather bring food and water to your horse if needed. Make sure the horse has shade or protection from inclement weather if needed and good insect control if indicated. And then when we arrive, that would be myself and the barrier team. When we arrive, we put the emergency package on the feet before we even move the horse. That way I know when we're getting the horse to where we need it to be, the vasculature is as protected as we can have it. The next thing I would do is give the horse a very tiny bit of sedation and take the plain radiographs and do the venogram. Then we have all of the diagnostic information we need. And we then, again, the, the primary goal is to reverse the vascular compromise. So then we know to what degree of mechanics we need to reverse that vascular compromise. And what I mean by mechanics is decreasing tension in the deep digital flexor tendon. That's our primary goal. Because the deep digital flexor tendon is attached to the bottom of the coffin bone, and the action of the tendon is to pull the coffin bone down and back, if you will. So palmar or planter and caudal. And the way it pulls the coffin bone down and back exerts pressure on the sole. And so there's increased load, if you will, on the sole corium and shearing forces on the lamina pulling away from the inner hoof wall around the coffin bone. So if we decrease tension in the deep digital flexor tendon, we can decrease the load on the sole corium and decrease the shearing forces on the lamina. And you can see on the venogram, the dramatic influence that the deep digital flexor tendon has on load, which is superior to the effects of gravity in the foot. So decreasing tension in the deep digital flexor tendon means increasing the palmar angle by at least 20 degrees and bringing the breakover back to zero or directly under the apex of the coffin bone. And there are a few more specifics and how we do that, but that's the general idea is decreasing tension in the deep digital flexor tendon. So that's my first emergency response. And it's important to note that when we get a call for laminitis, it doesn't matter what time of day or night or what day of the week it is. It is a red alert emergency, just like the foot was having a heart attack. We respond immediately as we would for any other medical emergency where blood flow is compromised to vital tissues. I think that sort of segues into my last question of if, you know, do you have any last minute tips for horse owners or farriers or vets that are maybe struggling with a limited case and kind of not sure where to go? Well, there are lots of options and lots of resources. If you are struggling with a laminitic case, I strongly recommend you reach out to people that have advanced education and experience treating or managing laminitis by thinking mechanically. People that 
comprehend the tremendous value of the venogram, understand the influence of the deep digital flexor tendon on load and perfusion or blood flow in the foot, any of those people would likely be more than happy to consult with you on a case. And the more you do that with the cases that you have in front of you, the more you can help future cases, right? So we learn as much from our mistakes as we do our successes. Maybe even more so, we learn from our mistakes. As much as you can expand your own knowledge by learning from others who have more experience or more education is a great thing for for the case in front of you, but also for future cases and for the betterment of the horse in general. So I strongly recommend that people reach out not only if they're struggling, but for general information as well and and to increase their ability to help horses. Dr. Redden has on his website information on how to directly consult with him, and that's always a wonderful option because you'll receive a wealth of information. But there are many people who are more than happy to to consult with you, and again, uh, I think, you know, every... Every day, every horse, every foot in front of us presents a new learning opportunity, no matter how long we've been doing this. So the more you can learn from others, the better. Yeah, and I think this is all really good information. So thank you so much for sharing it and being willing to do this. So it's been really helpful to chat through all this with you too. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, and have a good rest of your afternoon. Okay, you too. (laughs) Thanks. Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person, and chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too, so we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.